Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm Toby Miller, and I'm here in Gino's Coffee Shop in Fremantle with Fedi Hadis. How are you, Fedi? I'm okay. And he's a very important person. He's racing off on the 16th of October. He's got mm-hmm. significant meetings tomorrow, but he's very kindly made time to join us in the podcast today. So thank you very much. Well, how could I resist an offer of free coffee? <laughs> which is currently stirring. <laughs> now, where are you off to? It's the 14th of October as we speak. Where are you off to on the 16th February? I'm off to Jakarta, and I have meetings with uh, Indonesian social scientists, uh, the dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences and Politics at the University of Indonesia, the Indonesian Institute of, social, of uh, Sciences. I'm meeting people at the Indonesian National Development Planning Board, and I'm meeting even some Aussie bureaucrats there. Oh, I'm sure they're all <laughs> enjoying taking you a little ill, enjoy taking you out for a good meal, I hope, particularly on the Australian dime. Uh, no, 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 they're just coming to my hotel, and I think I'll have to serve them tea or coffee or something. All right. <laughs> and what are you going to be doing with them? Talking about collaboration, talking about bilateral issues? Well, to the uh, extent you can tell okay. us. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, there's a range of things. Uh, I mean, I, I'm an Indonesian, uh, but I've been uh, working overseas for, uh, yeah, in my professional capacity for ooh, almost 50 years now, in Singapore for 10 years, and I've been back uh, in Australia for about four and a half years now. And at Murdoch, uh, besides being a uh, professor at the Asia Research Center, I'm also what they call director of the Indonesia Research Program. Mm -hmm. And all that really means is that I try to coordinate Murdoch University's uh, initiatives and engagements with Indonesian institutions. This includes everything from the social sciences to uh, biological sciences to physics, uh, everything. And that's partly because... uh, we have a great deal of expertise on Indonesia across a range of disciplines at Murdoch University, but uh, very little of this expertise has been systematically put together uh, uh, to sort of project our uh, strengths on Indonesia, both to our Indonesian counterparts and actually to the Australian government as well. As you know, we are you know we are a mid-range university in Australia. People tend to think of the Australian National University when they think about Indonesia, but in actuality, Murdoch is probably uh, the university besides the ANU with the greatest concentration of Indonesia expertise in all of Australia. And for folks who are not familiar with Indonesian-Australian relations, it's worth noting that for many years Australia had a a fear of Indonesia Mm. as a potential military threat, an invader, and now it has a fear of Indonesia as a Muslim country. That's not the totality of the fears, and that doesn't characterize the entirety of the relationship. But those factors have been relevant in the last half century. Yes, that's true. Well, I think uh, a lot of this uh, comes out of uh, a lot of misperceptions and misleading information 
that is often regurgitated because it fits particular agendas and the worldviews of people holding those agendas, whether in Australia or in Indonesia itself. In terms of the old fear about Indonesia invading Australia, when I was a PhD student here 20 years ago, I heard more of this than I do now, and I used to laugh it off by saying, look, mate, we couldn't even invade East Timor properly. <laughs> <laughs> Australia. Uh, and in terms of uh, the uh, Muslim threat, uh, look, uh, not to sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, simplify matters and not to, not to present myself as not, as not taking seriously issues of terrorism and so on, uh, the major point to make is that... Uh, the threat is really quite small. First of all, Indonesian terrorist groups make a very, 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 very small faction of what you might call the broad Islamic political tendency in Indonesia. Uh, they tend to come out of people who've been most marginalized and disenfranchised politically and are angry and frustrated and so on. But the vast majority of Islamic political aspirations tend to be channeled through the formal political arena, uh, through Islamic political parties and so on. So you've got Islamic political parties engaging in basically electoral politics in Asia. And there is one thing that I think Australians ought to know. Indonesian Islamic political parties have always, in the history of Indonesian politics, lost in Indonesia. They've never been in any position to actually take control of the state. The most successful of Indonesia's Islamic parties got uh, something between 6 and 7% of the vote in the last two general elections. And put together, all of the Islamic parties uh, probably have about you know, depending on how, how, how you define an Islamic party, around 15 to 20% of the vote. And none of these have ever put such issues as establishing Sharia law in Indonesia or pursuing a caliphate or anything like that as part of their electoral agenda. Uh, their agenda has been about economic development, social justice, uh, dealing with corruption and these sorts of things. Very traditional Islamic questions. Uh, and also political questions mm -hmm. generally for any political party. Yes. But also traditional Islamic questions. Yeah, about true. Development, justice, anti-corruption. Absolutely, but also it is the, uh, the sort of issues that are also taken up by all political parties, right. be they secular or Islamic or whatever, in Indonesia, because these are the problems of Indonesia. Uh, it's just that these Islamic parties trap the petroleum exporting countries, uh, and because of that, Indonesia experienced the uh, the uh, gains that were to be gotten from the oil boom of the 1970s and 1980s when international oil prices went up. Uh, but uh, for a number of years now, Indonesia has not been a member of OPEC because Indonesia actually is a net oil importer now. It, it imports more oil than it exports. And that is because Indonesia actually exports crude oil and it does not have the facilities to refine that oil to make it usable. 
So what it does, it, it then imports those oil that it that oil that it, it exports back to Indonesia, making itself a net oil importer. Given the fact that Indonesia is industrialized, also uh, consumer demand for oil and so on has risen and, and so forth. Now, in terms of uh, of uh, uh, friction with Australia, actually the main point of friction uh, with regards to oil reserves between Australia is not with Indonesia, but with East Timor. So it is the East Timor uh, uh, linked uh, uh, unexploited oil reserves uh, that used to be part of Indonesian territory when East Timor was part of Indonesia that is uh, uh, the focus of uh, conflict. Now, Indonesia uh, uh, has uh, basically given up uh, uh, its rights to that oil when it, when East Timor became oh, independent. It? I didn't know yeah, that. yeah. Right. Uh, 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 it may get some, uh, uh, you know, uh, a small amount of royalties. I'm not quite sure about right. how the uh, how the uh, arrangements uh, were uh, negotiated uh, uh, specifically and how they stand. Uh, after 15 years of uh, the uh, East Timorese uh, independence referendum. But basically, it is a conflict between East Timor and Australia. And the point of the matter really is that uh, uh, with control over the oil that East Timor thinks it has uh, claim to, and I personally think that it has a strong claim towards it, uh, East Timor would be a much more viable economy yeah. Uh, than it is now, it would rely less on, on less of that foreign aid, including from Australia, that it gets. And the other thing it, uh, that it does now, mind you, I was one of those few Indonesians who actually believed in East Timorese independence, and I got a lot of flack about that uh, because uh, you know I was being called unpatriotic and unnationalistic and all that. But uh, the thing is that when I was a kid, East Timor was never in my consciousness. Uh, it was never taught to me as being part of Indonesia and then suddenly we invaded and it was part of Indonesia. So I always thought that was there was something wrong about that. Now, being a supporter of East Timorese independence, even against you know the Indonesian government and Indonesian public opinion, I am actually disappointed at the fact that the debate or the conflict between Australia and East Timor now gives fuel for Indonesian ultranationalists to say, see, that's why Australia supported East Timor. It just wanted its oil. Uh, and I think that uh, that actually uh, takes away uh, from a lot of the arguments that I made in that period, uh, which simply said that the invasion was morally wrong. Yeah, yeah. We're going back, as people may have heard in the podcast with Dick Robeson, to the 70s when the Portuguese dictatorship fell. Portugal became democratic, decolonized, mm -hmm. East Timor became independent, but unfortunately the United States and Australia backed an Indonesian invasion, yeah. and it was incorporated into the Indonesian states in the 70s, dreadful bloody yeah. costs in the mid-1970s, so yeah. a disgraceful uh, mark on Australian and US foreign policy. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Kissinger and Gough Whitlam. And Gough Whitlam Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in the Nixon and then Ford administrations in the U.S., Gough Whitlam, Prime Minister of an Australian Social Democratic government at that time, did worse than turn a blind eye. It encouraged Indonesia effectively to invade. Yeah. 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 
Um, I mean, it, it, it is likely that Suharto would have thought twice about invading if he hadn't been given what he thought was going on. Yeah. yeah. And of course, this was in the context of the Cold War, and East Timor was being run by the Fretilin, which was a sort of leftist nationalist movement. And at that time, of course, Vietnam was about to fall, or had just fallen, and, and Indochina was looking like a mess for America and for Australia, and so Indonesia was basically encouraged uh, uh, to invade a country that was governed by what seemed like a leftist government. And you had similar things going on in Africa Absolutely. with uh, Angola. Absolutely. Uh, Angola and Mozambique. Mozambique the yeah. and the end of the Portuguese. And Guinea-Bissau, yes. Yeah, yeah mm. precisely. So this was one of these cold warrior mm. stories that was easily told and easily understood by those who were invested in that madness. Mm. In any event, I'm interested in what you said about mm. public opinion mm. in Indonesia. Mm. How does that apply now with West Papua slash Irianjaya? Mm. Oh. Is Irianjaya the right pronunciation? Yes, it is actually. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, now, the difference with East Timor is that, uh, is that uh, Irianjaya or Papua had always been inculcated uh, in the minds of Indonesians as being a legitimate part of Indonesia because the claim that the Indonesian nationalist movement made in the 1940s was for all of the territory that was governed by the Dutch under the uh, uh, colonial territories of the Dutch East Indies. So in the minds of Indonesia there is something more legitimate about uh, uh, the Indonesian uh, uh, control of uh, Papua than East Timor. So I think that it would be very, very difficult, much more difficult uh, uh, to get the sort of outcome in Papua uh, that you got in East Timor. The other thing, of course, is that Papua is a resource-rich territory. Uh, Timor produced sandalwood and, and whatever, and had that oil that was unexplored at the time. But uh, Papua is the site of the operations of Freeport, uh, uh, one of the uh, biggest mining companies in the world, which has been operating in Asia since the 60s, uh, initially in close cooperation with the new order of, of the dictator Suharto. Who was an Indonesian general who took power in a coup, and the bloody one that saw the killing of half a million communists in the mid-60s. Exactly. And uh, uh, because of uh, that, these sorts of, uh, I think, appeal to nationalist sentiment and, and imagery, and also because of the real economic uh, stakes in maintaining Indonesian control of Papua, and also because uh, the international world really does not have uh, uh, anything to gain from what used to be called the possibility of Indonesian balkanization, uh, I don't think they're going to get what they want in East Papua. Uh, my hope is that some sort of uh, agreement by which uh, 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 autonomy uh, in Papua could be established whereby uh, uh, the Papuan people will be able to govern themselves and also to uh, uh, gain a lot more than they have in, in the past 40, 50 years from their natural resources. Because basically, uh, they haven't been able 
to benefit from those, and I understand perfectly why uh, these people are angry. And the Indonesian government's strategy of uh, taking care of this by violence, I think, really is uh, a huge mistake. We saw that they tried to do this in Aceh, another restive territory in Indonesia. Uh, Against Islamic groups. Well, well, that's an interesting case, because the Aceh movement uh, initially was part of a broader Darul Islamist movement in Indonesia, but in the 50s, and the 1970s, certainly, it had emerged as a proper nationalist movement. Uh-huh. It wanted its own country. And that's because it also had its natural resources. It felt it was being exploited by, by, by Indonesia and so on. And in the early 1990s, what, Indo- what Indonesia did under Suharto was send special forces over there to, uh, to deal with the, with, with the insurrection. Now, I remember going to Aceh in the early 1990s, and I talked to uh, many people, mainly NGO activists and journalists and academics, because that was you know, the sort of environment uh, uh, that I had, and very few of them wanted independence from Indonesia. But when I returned to Aceh uh, a decade or so later, that had completely changed. It was because of Indonesian heavy-handedness there, the military atrocities and so on there, that most Achenese then uh, uh, supported the independence movement. Now, eventually, uh, in 2005, uh, there was an agreement by which Aceh would have special, uh, a special uh, an arrangement for special autonomy. And, you know, in terms of being incorporated into the Indonesian polity, it seems to have done uh, so rather smoothly at the moment, although there are other problems going on in Aceh, uh, having to do with the development of Indonesian-like corrupt activities uh, within the parties that had emerged out of the Achenese independence movement that are now governing. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And um, let's now focus in a bit on your research, which you've mentioned a couple of times. You've given me an update and a primer and a couple of corrections to my apprehensions <laughs> and misapprehensions. Mm for which many thanks. Mm. You're a very noted scholar, very productive, and you've done a lot of really significant work. I wondered if we could go back um, to, I guess, your doctoral research Mm. and how that was published and what's emerged in the intervening period, Mm. and also perhaps talk a little bit about being an Asianist in Singapore Mm. as opposed to in Indonesia, as opposed to in Australia. Right. So why don't we think about some publications? Okay. Well, uh, you see... I'm actually an accidental academic. <laughs> a member of AA. <laughs> uh, I, I started off uh, in student activist circles when it was very hard to be a student activist in Indonesia. Which is in Jakarta. In Jakarta because of the uh, intense state repression at the time. And just basically the impediments to, uh, to, uh, to organizing overtly as you know, student activists in Indonesia at the time. So basically, we were you know, sort of semi-underground. You know, in, in, this was in the 1980s, and then you know, uh, and I sort of uh, graduated into sort of NGO movements. Although I was always, I suppose, on the, doing the more intellectual stuff rather than the uh, sort of mass mobilizing stuff that other people were better at. I quickly uh, came to realize <laughs> uh, than I was. Uh, uh, 
but it was because of that that uh, I thought of actually doing a PhD thesis, partly because I got you know, kind of sick and tired of the of the uh, what is it, of the brick wall I seem to be uh, putting my head against constantly in authoritarian Indonesia and I thought, it, I, thought I needed some time off and uh, just think about what I was doing and what I was thinking about. So uh, Dick Robeson actually uh, offered and organised uh, for me to get a PhD here at Murdoch University's Asia Research Centre uh, and uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, uh, I uh, talked him into thinking that there was something in me or there was nobody else available at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I went over here, and uh, so the topic of my PhD was very much uh, influenced by my political activism, and it was on the Indonesian labor movement. Uh, at the time, uh, there was a surge of labor unrest in Indonesia, which was unheard of, really, because of the authoritarian controls over labor organizing, which were really strict. And... You know, you had all this brutality, really, being yeah. being, being imposed on labor organizations, and yet you had this upsurge of labor organizing and strikes and so mm -hmm. on. And that's basically what I wrote about as my PhD thesis. Although a lot of my activist friends uh, didn't like what I came up with because uh, I kind of said that uh, it was going to be uh, very difficult to uh, develop a, an effective labor movement within the existing structures of power in Indonesia, uh, but that uh, uh, democratization may provide some avenues uh, towards uh, some improvement in the quality of labor organizing. I subsequently came to say that even democracy, though, was impeding uh, the development of the labor movement because uh, uh, because the Indonesian political parties that had emerged after democratization tended to be controlled by the old elites that had no organic links with the labor movement. And the labor movement was so weak because of the authoritarianism of the new order that they could not organize a block of support for, for, for political parties. Therefore, they were not able to negotiate with political parties on behalf of a Labour constituency. Therefore, uh, political parties tended, I thought, in the early 2000s and mid-2000s to ignore Labour and to sort of opportuni opportunistically only make use of you know, sort of Labour symbolisms to get whatever Labour constituency they could get. But basically, uh, that was a reflection of my interest in, in, in resistance to authoritarianism, or the sources of resistance to Indonesian authoritarianism. Uh, and then uh, my next book, uh, authored book, was, was co-authored with Richard Robeson, in which I wrote about uh, actually the process of the uh, uh, reorganization of power in Indonesia. So I said uh, with Dick that uh, uh, rather than all of this uh, liberal democracy and free markets and all the nice things that consultants were telling Indonesians would happen in Indonesia in the late 90s, which I really got pissed off about, uh, which was one of the impulses for me to write this book with Dick, I was pissed off 
at the way that Indonesia was being portrayed, portrayed in this sort of developmental and consultancy-oriented literature. I thought it was really misleading. Uh, that was what was really happening was the development of a kind of uh, oligarchic democracy, you know, whereby uh, the old elites reinvented themselves uh, as democrats and controlled the institutions of democracy and continued with their uh, uh, predatory activities, which basically meant enriching themselves through control and access over state and public resources. Uh, so this book became reorganization, uh, sorry, Reorganizing Power in Indonesia. And so what was the title of your first book on labor? Uh, Workers and the State in Yorda, Indonesia. The second book was Reorganizing Power in Indonesia. And the third book was called Localizing Power in Indonesia, which was about uh, reorganizing power, but at the local level. Mm. And here I looked at, about, at how... Uh, uh, a decentralization which went together with market reforms and so on in Asia rather than creating sort of uh, uh, locally sort of uh, more transparent and uh, uh, accountable states actually created uh, imitations of, of the state at the uh, at the central level so you had uh, sort of local kingpins developing uh, power over the local state apparatus, uh, controlling parliaments and parties through alliances with all the elites and so on, and very little of the kinds of transparency and focus on accountability and, and services and so on that was promised by, uh, by uh, the technocratic uh, uh, discourse on, on development. Uh, now, that was a very long-winded way of answering your, the first part of your question. <laughs> uh, the second part of your question was, what was the difference uh, uh, in being an Indonesian expert in Indonesia, Singapore, and Australia? Well, there are huge differences. Uh, first of all, in Indonesia, uh, quite frankly, I wouldn't have written as much as I, would, as I did, because uh, uh, it is only now that there are pressures on academics to actually write. Okay. Although I must say I wrote because I wanted to rather than you know, the way that young people do now because they want to be professor before they're 40 or whatever. Right? Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but I think that uh, I would have been probably more involved in activist uh, sort of uh, things. I would have probably written newspaper articles, been involved in NGOs and so on, as most Indonesian sort of activist intellectuals are. So it would have been a very different trajectory, I think. Uh, in Singapore, uh, I mean, I, when I got a job in Singapore, uh, my colleagues outside of Singapore who I met at conferences used to always ask me, number one, how did I get that job in Singapore? Because, you know, the idea of Singapore being very conservative and not liking, you know, sort of scholars that like to write about resistance and, and, and stuff like that. And secondly, uh, they also uh, uh, asked me, uh, how come they haven't fired you? Uh, the answer to that is because when I went to Singapore, I was at the National University of Singapore, and they were really into this uh, program of developing the university into an internationally prestigious university. So, given that I didn't really write on Singapore, though I did teach on Singapore, I think I was given a lot of leeway because I wrote a lot. 
and that was important to them in terms of you know developing their international. You business. met their metrics, and you didn't piss in their backyard. Uh, well, I think so, and also I got lots of bonuses. That's the way it worked in Singapore. If you wrote a lot at the end of the year, you actually got a bonus. And I remember that I often got pretty nice bonuses. So, and they kept promoting me as well. I, I actually thought that I, would, I could only last there for two or three years, and then I would leave. But uh, in actuality, they kept promoting me, uh, and so I stayed much longer than I thought I would. Golden handcuffs. Uh, well, it didn't feel like it at all, actually, quite like honestly. That. Quite yeah, honestly, yeah. It, uh, I often say to people that uh, I had, there's probably a lot more freedom in what you can teach in Singapore than there is in Australia. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Because I could just write a syllabus and it would be accepted without anybody looking at it for another three years, yeah. during which time I would have taught three cohorts of students yeah. and uh, it didn't have to go through all sorts of committees and so on the absurd governmentalization yeah, yeah, hyper-bureaucratization yeah. of yeah. higher education yeah. in the Anglo world absolutely destroying so, creativity holding people back and generating levels of surveillance absolutely rarely seen since the second world absolutely. war and I suppose I was also uh, you know I also benefited from the fact that uh, although there was this idea that there was surveillance and, and all that in Singapore mm. and that you would be punished if you, uh, uh, you know, uh, talk the wrong way or walk in the wrong direction. Shoot gum in the elevator. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really care that much. Right. Uh, I think that was my saving grace. I didn't... Basically, I mean, I don't want to be blasé about this so much, but it, it, really, it really was the fact I didn't care if I was fired. Right. And the reason for that is they paid me well in Singapore and I always thought that I could always go home to Indonesia and just, uh, you know, hang around for a few years until something came up and it really didn't bother me. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. So I think that was my saving grace, not caring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Australia, I find that uh, it's different because... Uh, I think that the Australian university sector is under a lot of pressure. Uh, I think that this is causing uh, uh, a deterioration in the quality of Australian higher education. I think that uh, all of the demands being made on academics, not only to produce things, but also to show their relevance to industry, and then their relevance to government, and then you know, all sorts of other things actually uh, uh, makes it difficult for young people to develop a career trajectory whereby they're not being run by these, you know, sort of only pragmatic considerations, but also because uh, they really sincerely want to explore some sort of intellectual pathway. And I think that is how good work comes out. Yeah, the know. spirit of inquiry yeah. is basically being governmentalized and commodified Absolutely. out of them. Yeah. And scrutiny is increasing. I saw only yesterday in mm. the Australian, mm. which is Rupert Murdoch's national newspaper, a full-page story denouncing media studies based on undercover work yeah. at the Australian, at the University yeah. of Sydney, University of Technology Sydney, which exposed that, guess what, a couple of lecturers whom I'd never heard of mm. had said that Rupert Murdoch engaged in political meddling in order oh, to further his own interests. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, astonishing. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, but let me tell you something that I often say 
both in Australia and Indonesia, and it surprises both audiences. I often say that the press in Indonesia today is freer than the press in Australia. And the reason I say that is because the press in Australia, the printed press certainly, is basically controlled by two companies. Yeah. And you look at most of the newspapers in, Indonesia, in, sorry, in Australia, they have the same view on everything. And they're shockingly parochial as well. I've been staggered by how parochial they are. Absolutely. So, whereas in Indonesia, because uh, there's, there's still a greater diversity of ownership and worldviews that are attached to these different uh, newspapers, you get... You know, many different kinds of points of views on the more important things that come well, up in, in society. In many ways, it's a more plural society, yes. ironically. I mean, yes. Australia, for all its avowed multiculturalism mm. and the fact that it has lots of people who live in it or visit it born in other mm. places, like you and me, mm -hmm. it is still Anglo Saxon, Anglo Celtic dominated in almost every aspect of life. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, there are pressures. To, uh, to to sort of even emphasize this Anglo-Celticness. Yeah. Uh, the so-called Judeo-Christian ethic is being promulgated at the moment by the federal government as part of what schooling should be beholden to. Absolutely. The curriculum is supposed to highlight uh, the contributions of Western civilization. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But, you know, my daughter went to high school here and I looked at her you know, humanity stuff. Lots of stuff on America. I didn't see anything on Mesopotamia right. or anything on Angkor or anything like that. Not much, anyway, yeah. compared to uh, uh, Rome and America. Yeah. I mean, she learned about prohibition in America. What the hell relevance does that have to do? You know, does that have with, with her life trajectory? It means she can watch The Untouchables in <laughs> and Or the old 1960s uh, uh, Robert Stack series. Yeah. <laughs> Better to watch. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I take you back for a moment to the labour question, yeah. Fadi? And I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about the role of the labour movement in the struggle for independence from the Netherlands mm -hmm. and then in the Sukarno regime mm -hmm. and then in that tumultuous year in 1965. Okay, well, the Indonesian labor movement actually is very old. It's one of the oldest in the Third World. You know, it, it started in the 1910s uh, and it was started by a group of uh, tramway workers. Uh, you know, in the Dutch colonial economy, uh, a couple of things were important. It was the plantations, uh, because uh, they produced things that uh, you know were to be exported in Europe, mm -hmm. and then it was the transport industry because you needed to bring the uh, produce you know to the harbors. So the tramway workers and the train workers and so on were very important, and then there were the harbor workers, mm -hmm. which were also very important. There was very little manufacturing mm -hmm. throughout most of the Dutch period. So insofar as the labor movement emerged in Indonesia, it emerged out of these sectors. First of all, the tramway workers, transport workers, and then the plantation workers, and, and, and the harbour workers. Uh, now, there were different kinds of labour movements in Indonesia. The most important in the 1910s were actually linked up with the Sarekat Islam, believe it or not. Hmm. Okay, that was 
it's called the, the Sarekat Islam or Islamic Union, but it is considered to be the first nationalist mass organization in Indonesia. And also, it's a Sarekat Islam, Islamic Union. And I'd just like to point out that a lot of people, I just read something that said that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is the oldest Islamic mass organization in the world. Well, the Sarekat Islam is older than the century Muslim. old. Uh, well, no, no. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was established in 1928, the Sarekat Islam in about 1912. So a century okay. old. Uh, it's a century old now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, um, but, but later on, uh, the Sarikat it's Islam itself, and this is something which I think is sociologically very interesting, hmm. okay, actually develop alliances with the nascent Indonesian Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Hmm. So, in Asia, and not just in Indonesia, but in other parts of Asia, including in, in parts of the Middle East, right? In the 1910s and 1920s, all the way really up to the if you talk about Iran up to the 1970s, the sociological phenomenon of the, of the Muslim as communist was actually not something that is as astonishing as you would think of it now. Right? So, it was these Muslim communists that were straddling in between the Sarekat Islam and the Indonesian Communist Party that would then develop the strongest trade union movements in Indonesia. In colonial, yeah. in the colonial Dutch Indies. Now, in 1923, and again in 1926 and 1927, these were smashed by the Dutch. Uh, and mind you, for the Dutch, the link between Islam and communism was probably, in their minds, the greatest threat you could imagine to the colonial order, because these are two major sources of potential. Fanaticism, isn't it? Right. 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 So, so really, the political history of the Dutch, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, control over the Dutch Indies in the early 1920s had to do not just with dismantling the Sarikat Islam, but also to crush, mm. uh, you know, that, that 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 link between yeah. communism and Islam. Right. So. The labor movement went underground in the 1930s and only went up again in 1945 when the Japanese left. And then in the 1940s, between 45 and 49, the Dutch returned to Indonesia, which had declared independence. Uh, you know, the Dutch had been expelled from Indonesia in 1942 by the Japanese. 1945, when the Japanese were about to surrender to the Allies, Indonesia declared independence under Sukarno. In, uh, later in 45, the Dutch returned with the English to take away that independence, and there was a revolutionary national independence war that took place between 45 and 49, and there were lots of labor militias that were involved in this struggle, and there were lots of labor strikes and, and labor mobilizations and so on uh, that took place. To, to help the nationalist movement in its struggle with the Dutch. And to be fair to mm. labor movements in mm. other countries, including so-called Western ones, particularly in Australia, there was a lot of solidarity Absolutely. with this independence movement and its labor origin. Up to today, Indonesia mm. uh, uh, still remembers, in that it's still written in Indonesian uh, national history textbooks, that Australian trade unionists, mm. dock workers, 
in particular. Waterside workers. Water, yeah. Uh, 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 went on strike in solidarity mm -hmm. with Indonesia, refused to load Dutch ships mm -hmm. that were heading towards Indonesia. And that is still written in Indonesian history books. So, uh, with all the ups and downs in the relationships, at mm. least the official relationship between mm. Indonesia and Australia, this is something that has always remained, you know, in the memory that Australia did support Indonesia, was, was one of the earliest supporters, or at least the Australian people. Australian people. Uh, rather than the Australian <laughs> government, that the Australian people yeah. were one of the earliest supporters of Indonesian independence. So, in the 40s, you had that. In the 50s, the labor movement again was dominated by the Communist Party, which at that time uh, became the third largest communist party in the world, you know, uh, after China and Russia. Uh, but of course, they never governed, unlike in China and Russia. And Sukarno had leftist tendencies in certain ways, but was basically a nationalist. He was basically a nationalist. He was basically an anti-imperialist. Yeah. And it was his anti-imperialism that in the late 50s and early 60s got him closer and closer with the Indonesian Communist Party. So this is the high point of Indonesia as a third world leader through the non-aligned movement which is birthed in Indonesia, Absolutely. in Bandung, Absolutely. in 55. Sukarno hosted the uh, uh, meeting of the Asia-Africa movement. Yeah. So, uh, the Indonesian Communist Party was actually doing well uh, uh, you know, in the 1950s and early 1960s, under two very different political systems, by the way. In the 50s, Indonesia had a parliamentary democracy, and the communists came number four in the elections. Um, and later on, they came number one in the major island, most heavily populated island of Java. So, it might have been the case that if parliamentary democracy continued in Indonesia, uh, they might have been involved in government somehow, as a coalition partner or whatever. Uh, but actually, in the late 50s, Sukarno closed down the parliamentary system. He created what he called uh, guided democracy, uh, whereby power would be more concentrated on the presidency, parliament was domesticated and all that. But the Indonesian Communist Party kind of reinvented itself and uh, re-strategized and decided that its fate was tied to that of Sukarno's. And this was the fatal mistake. The fatal mistake. Because in 1965, uh, three events that we don't really know about completely, uh, but I think uh, most likely had to do with a attempts within some sections of the military to overthrow Sukarno, uh, the Indonesian Communist Party was, uh, was uh, uh, accused of instigating uh, the coup uh, and crushed by the Indonesian military, whereas I think it's highly more likely that uh, uh, sections of the military uh, uh, were involved in, in, in some of things happening in the background there, or that if the Indonesian Communist Party had anything to do with it, uh, it had to do with it uh, uh, in a very, at a level in which rank and file members really didn't know much about it at all. Yeah. It was very much, you know, sort of elite sort of uh, uh, maneuverings between you know, sections of the military and sections of the Communist Party. PKI. Yeah, the PKI.
So, essentially, the labour movement is destroyed. Labour movement is decimated in 1965-66. I mean, it's the biggest slaughter of workers. Um, well, you said half a million people were killed, but uh, estimates have been up to two million. Really? Oh, yeah. I thank yeah. you for... Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, it's really hard to estimate, but I am comfortable of thinking that between 800,000 and a million okay. were killed. And then right. there were uh, untold numbers of people who were also uh, exiled into uh, you know, the island of Buru, the notorious island of Buru, uh, and put in other uh, places of imprisonment for many, many years without, any, uh, without trial, without any clear accusations of anything. And their children were to be stigmatized. Uh, they would have, uh, you know, sort of uh, certain things put in their uh, identity card, which would uh, uh, impede them getting jobs, uh, getting into uh, universities, and, and, and so on. So, uh, actually, Indonesia still lives with a trauma of 65, 66, in that uh, nobody really knows what happened. And so it's still a major mystery. Uh, the people who really know what happened are all dead now, uh, including Suharto. Uh, the Communist Party leader, who was uh, supposed to have been involved in the official narrative, was captured and shot immediately, you know, without any trial or anything. So we don't know what his story is. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, you know, given the fact that the Indonesian Communist Party used to have such a huge membership and so many uh, 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 mass organizations connected with it, it is highly likely that almost any Indonesian during the New Order had family members that were connected somehow with the Communist Party. And uh, these people uh, would try to uh, hide that or, uh, you know, be, uh, uh, or they would ostracize their own family members because uh, uh, it was very dangerous to be identified as, as a communist during the order. In fact, if you were a communist, basically, uh, it meant that you could be shot and killed. So when does mm. the labor movement manage to reassert itself? Well, it reasserts itself uh, independently of anything to do with communism because right. it had been smashed. Uh, it reasserted itself when the new order in the 1980s because oil prices had gone down, uh, uh, went into a economic, an economic uh, development strategy that uh, emphasized uh, the export of low-wage manufacturers. So, uh, uh, you know, sort of factories sprung up, yeah. uh, more, you know, workers, uh, uh, sort of uh, people coming from the villages became workers, uh, and they fought for their rights because the conditions of work were atrocious mm. and they had you know, very few rights of organization and, uh, and expression. So by the, uh, by the early 90s, uh, this sort of uh, very new proletariat had developed um, a, you know, sort of semi-official underground uh, organizations uh, to bypass the, the formal organizations labor con of labor control that the New Order had set up to impede labor organization. And this is what I wrote about in, in my in first book. Right, right. yeah. Well, Fadi, I wonder if, to conclude, mm. we mm. could spend a little time talking about your mm. research right now. Yeah, okay. Well, 
Uh, I always uh, sort of change my research projects after a few years because, uh, you know, because, well, you know. The world changes and you get bored. Absolutely, I get bored. <laughs> Mainly because I get bored because I tend to be asked to write the same thing over and over and go to conferences and say the same thing and then I get really tired of it. And uh, uh, also, I just think that uh, it's a way of keeping oneself fresh, I think, intellectually. So after so I decided a few years ago that I would do an about turn and lo and behold, to everybody's surprise, I started to write about Islam. And people said, what credentials have you got to write about Islam? <laughs> None. <laughs> Except that uh, I was raised as a Muslim. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, I decided that uh, I was pissed off as well at most of the literature on Indonesian Islam. I thought a lot of it was either very security-oriented in the most simplistic fashion, so very, very, you know, sort of, uh, 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 well, uh, uh, you know, all Muslims are potential terrorists sort of thing, uh, or they had to, had to do with, uh, you know, the very simplistic renditions of uh, interpretation of doctrine defines people's behavior and therefore their cultural practices and therefore their political beliefs and their political actions. And I thought that uh, uh, there was something really missing because I thought, why is it that we have, you know, the, this dual tendency in Indonesia for Islam embracing democracy on the one hand, but also Islam embracing violence on the other hand. And why is it happening at the same time? How do you explain this sociologically and in the broader political economic context? So what I did was I actually went and brushed aside some, but not all, of the literature on Indonesian political Islam brushed aside a lot of the literature on Southeast Asian Islam, which was similar to Indonesian Islam, and studied the literature on Middle Eastern and North African Islam, where I, which I found much more sociologically engaged and had a much stronger political economy dimension. So what I did really was I tried to infuse some of the theoretical concerns of the literature on Islamic politics that I found in the Middle East into the literature on Indonesian and Southeast Asian Islamic politics, trying to get it away from that orientation uh, or that fetish, you know, with security issues and with doctrinal issues, and to try to look at these things in relation to uh, broader and longer-term sociological transformations and the broader uh, and changing political economy context. So what I did also was I basically transferred a lot of my uh, sort of political economy and political sociology kinds of concerns that I had uh, used in my studies uh, on decentralization and the organizing power in Indonesia and, and workers and the state and brought it into the study of Islam. So if I could claim a contribution, I think that probably I'm one of the very few people 
uh, in collaboration with people like Dick Robeson and also a Malaysian named Kubu Tech, Kubu Tech, who's now, who's based in Japan, uh, to do a political economy of Islamic politics in Southeast Asia, uh, which I think is not done by a lot of people at all. And what is that disclosing? What, what it discloses, I think that, uh, first of all, the fallacies of, and, and uh, oversimplific oversimplification that uh, uh, is uh, sort of intrinsic to, the, to that security approach and also to the doctrine, doctrine equals political behavior approach. Uh, but also, I think it shows that uh, Islamic politics is not different at all from other forms of politics. That in the end, Islamic politics is in the twine with concrete conflicts over power and resources. And therefore, it is important to understand the political economy context in which Islamic politics emerge, because this shapes the agendas and the strategies. In some contexts, Islamic politics will embrace democracy and the market, like they have in Turkey, because it provides them with a shield against the military and against the uh, Kamalist business establishment. And they can make use of their Middle Eastern sort of uh, market as well. Right. Now, uh, in other cases, uh, being uh, marginalized and not, in, not having the capacity to compete effectively in the formal arena of politics entices Muslim activists to take extra democratic strategies uh, including, you know, sort of paramilitary organizations and so on, up to and, and including uh, the possibility of adopting terrorist activities. So, from that point of view, there is no monolithic Islamic politics. There is no, nothing intrinsic about Islamic politics. It's all contingent and is shaped by the context, just like any politics is. And what I, I suppose what I try to do is try to de-orientalize you know, the study of Islamic politics by infusing uh, theories and tools and concepts that are common to the study of political economy and political sociology and politics having to do with any other phenomenon. Right. Instead of the notion of Islam's difference. Absolutely. Instead of exceptionalism. Yeah. The exceptionalism, the clash yeah. of civilizations yeah. doctrine of Bernard Lewis yeah. and, and Sam, Sam Huntington. Huntington. Yeah. Sam Huntington, by the way, a major player in the legitimation of the Suharto regime. And That's by the way, in terms of not knowing what happened, I think there are probably some files in the CIA in Langley that might tell us a lot about what happened. In yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, uh, that's actually right. starting to be uh, uh, declassified now. And there is a book by John Russo, uh, an American academic, which has who has started to use uh, uh, a lot of that declassified documents, although right. some of them remain, remain classified. classified. The National Security Archive, which is a leftist mm -hmm. NGO, mm -hmm. has some interesting things on Indonesia. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Well, we do know that the Americans and the British uh, supplied the Indonesian military with a list of people, basically, to get rid of. To get rid of. Yeah. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap, yeah, as has yeah. been said before. Yeah. Well, Fadi, I want to thank you very much for coming into the pod today. It's no, great no to problem. have you. Very exciting. Hope work. I didn't have too much coffee and spoke too fast. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and I'd like to extract the promise from you yeah. that when your next work is done, or at some point when you'd like to, mm -hmm. you'd re-enter the pod with us and share. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Thank you very much for having me.